Okay, well, let's go ahead. We'll pause with, for a word of prayer because I always tell my classes, this is not a Christian theology class. We're in the Old Testament, so we've got to Christianize it. So we pray in Jesus' name. So uh, let's pause and then we'll get started. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. We thank you because we are your people, that you have given us the desire to study the Word, to understand Psalms, as well as all of the Christian doctrine. But tonight, as we continue studying Psalms, I pray that you'll give us clarity of thought, help us to see the theology in the Psalter, and help us to gain an appreciation for it, and most of all, for you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, let's see. Is it Jim? Mike. Mike, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, man, I'm glad to have you with us. Uh, I know if you want to look on with notes from Ed, he's a sharing type of guy or whoever, or you can just follow along. It's uh, really not that significant a thing. You could buy a book, too. (laughs) (laughs) So are you saying he's cheap? Is that it? Well, I guess that's the one advantage of having written it. I don't have to buy it. <laughs> okay, we were looking at the imprecatory psalms last week. We're, we had looked at the literary features. Now we want to move to page 30. And I want to review a few things before we just summarize the content. Remember, this is an imprecation. In this psalm, uh, the psalmist is praying down. Can I say the judgment of God? So he prays that self-imprecation on his hand. If uh, its hand forgets her skill on the harp, I don't think it was an electric harp, quite frankly, but I think it was a harp. Uh, maybe an electric guitar. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's pretty safe to say it's not. But whatever he was playing, he says, May my right hand forget her skill. Well, if he doesn't remember Jerusalem, that's what he wants to happen. That's what we call a self-imprecation. He's praying it against himself. Notice, furthermore, he prays on his tongue. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's called a self-implication because it's praying it on himself. If we're praying on somebody else, we just call it an implication. You know, like I was praying that a Pelosi would fall with a gavel in her hand. I was praying an implication on her. So, I think the judgment's going to come with the next election, quite frankly. <laughs> but that's not a self-implication. That's where I'm praying evil on somebody else, or praying judgment. To strike down the wicked is not evil. That's right and good. Um, but I'm not saying all Democrats are unregenerate. I thought Bart Stupak might have been regenerated. Huh. Until Sunday. <laughs> and then I changed my mind. Well, whatever, I'll let you pray those things. I'd better resist the urge because I'd be too tempted to do it. So we have the self-implication. 
But notice the implication of verses 7 to 9. Notice, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very ground. So that, that was the Edomites' cry when Jerusalem was being destroyed. And so the psalmist breaks out and says, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. Notice the implication here, how blessed will be the one who repays you. That's an implication. Um, with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And as I said last week, this is the one that's a little difficult for me. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against a rock. Now, I'm not prepared to say that the psalmist is wrong on that. I have seen some commentators that say he is. I would say that whenever God's revealed something to the writers and God's deemed their judgment, I think it's right. Uh, I personally don't think... I mean, I, I could not pray that. You know, take their little ones and dash them against the rocks. That would be tough. But I think if we understand what the point is, that's the way you destroy a culture. And so the prayer is to ruin Babylon. Just think, if that would have happened, we might be better off today. <laughs> so, as I pointed out last week, there's some things I'd be, I would not do because I don't think I have clear revelation to do it. The Old Testament prophets, psalm writers, they had more information than we do. So I would not go on that type of campaign myself. However, I used the analogy with Galatians 1 where Paul said, if anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Well, I can't break that. Um, I guess the question always becomes, what do they mean by a false gospel? Well, I, you know, I personally think that anyone who preaches uh, a true, easy believism, I think that's a false gospel. And I do pray that uh, their mouths would be stopped. Now, I don't pray for God to dash them against the rock stuff. But people who are stumbling block, really, uh, Christians may pray for that. Uh, that's what the Chinese will do. For those who stand in the way of the spread of the gospel, they will pray an implication. So, you know, if I was in their culture, I could understand why. I mean, because this is serious business. People are being killed for the gospel of Christ. So, that's uh, that's their culture, and I would not say it's wrong. But even they, I've asked the Chinese about this. Do you pray for the little ones to be dashed against the rock? And they wouldn't pray that. It's just against those officials who are opposing the gospel and will not let it be spread. So, and I think most of them pray that God would convert them or take them out of the way. So I think that balances out the force of the implication. We really want them to be see converted. Uh, I prayed this for Bill Clinton before. Uh, I don't know that I could pray it for Barack, that he be converted. I think, I mean, I... Well, my political opinions don't count here. Mm -hmm. So let me move past that. I'm just caught up 
I'm ticked about Sunday. At this point, I was angry on Sunday. I had a rough time going to sleep. Uh, today, I'm more frustrated because I've accepted this is what God's ordained for us. Whether we like it or not, we just have to make the most of it. And that's all. And by the way, many of you around my age, we're going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be our kids who are going to pay for this and their kids. That's the part that's stressing. But so we can smile about it. We're going to be taken care of. <laughs> it's all about me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's crazy. <laughs> Maybe we should have been in Washington, D.C. with Pastor Ken. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's look at the content of Psalm 137. Mm-hmm. I need to get off this imprecatory stuff. There's too many things our minds may one run wild with. But notice the basic point of the psalm in point C. The message of Psalm 137 focuses on the mourning represented by the Israelite captives who longed for Jerusalem and prayed for God's justice against his enemies. And so I do provide you with an outline like I've done with all the psalms. And so if you're a user, there's at least an outline to follow. So that's the lament psalms. So we've covered a lot with the lament psalms. We've looked at individual laments, corporate laments. Uh, what's outstanding are the uh, imprecatory laments. But the point is the laments are the largest group of psalms in the Psalter. One-third of the psalms in the Psalter are lament psalms. So I would think, at least where I've gotten consolation many times by looking at lament psalms when I'm discouraged. They've been a great source of encouragement. You know, probably my life psalm is Psalm 51 because I've sinned a lot. I mean, and so have you. So there's a place for that. And there's other laments. You know, I think for churches when they've gone through a rough time, there are corporate laments to use in that. Uh, the one thing I think if you remember weeks back, I encourage you not to do. If you're going to give a little charge at a wedding, don't use a lament psalm. I did hear a preacher do that one time. That was bad taste. <laughs> but uh, down south, I think they make more than types of jokes. So we want to move on to the Thanksgiving Psalms on page 31. These are the opposite end of the Lament Psalms. So with the Lament Psalms, we're mourning. These end... This, these types of psalms are at the opposite end. It's expression of praise and thanksgiving. If the Old Testament believer had gone through a lamentable situation, and if he had specifically asked God to deliver him from this situation, and God then subsequently delivered him, he may have com- communicated this in a thanksgiving psalm. So, you need to get the real point. They pray to lament. They have a specific prayer request, and then God subsequently answers it. That would be put often, uh, at least in selected times, in a Thanksgiving psalm. So we're going to look at that. This is uh, These are great to sing when we're upbeat because we see God at work. We thank Him for what he's, the way He's answered our prayers.
This type of psalm is a joyful expression of thanksgiving to God for having responded to this specific request. Thus, a situation of struggle and mourning is the matrix that produced the Thanksgiving psalm. In a subsection of a Thanksgiving psalm, a summarized form of a lament will appear in a small segment of a Thanksgiving psalm. While a lament may be summarized in this type of psalm, the Thanksgiving psalm's dominant feature is an expression of gratitude to the Lord for having responded to a specific request of an individual or group. Like the lament psalms, there are individual and corporate laments. An individual psalm of thanksgiving is found in Psalm 18, 30, 32, etc. A corporate psalm of thanksgiving is found in Psalm 65, 67, 75, 107, 124, 136. Notice there's not as many corporate thanksgiving psalms as the least with the individual, but notice each of them is not that much. So there are three basic literary items found in the Thanksgiving psalm. Number one, there's an expression of praise to the Lord or a blessing. So he's either going to praise God or he's going to provide a blessing on God or someone else, but usually God. Then two, a description of the distress and deliverance. Quite often, that's where the psalmist may recount when he lamented. And then three, an expression of thanksgiving or a promise to eternally praise God. We're going to look at one of the most well-known individual thanksgiving psalms, Psalm 32. Most uh, often, I should say, people don't realize it. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. They often think of it as a lament because it does re reflect in it a few verses where he had lamented something. He's looking back to his original lament, though. And in this case, he's thanking God because he answered his prayer. So let's look at the individual thanksgiving psalm here in Psalm 32. What we want to notice here, notice how David uses the uh, personal pronoun I, me, my. Now he does use he, but notice that's generalized. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. My strength was sapped. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin. Notice the I, the me, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. So, now he will use the third person, but you can tell it's personal because he moves to this I, me, and my. That's why they call it an individual Thanksgiving song. <coughs> so let's look at these uh, literary elements. Um, unfortunately, you'll be stuck. There's theology here as well. So I will try to pull out a little bit of that theology, as I've done with every other psalm. See, the reason why I've chosen these psalms is because they're either well-known or there's theology that's rich in it. Uh, psalm 137 is not as well-known, but I don't know how many times I've been asked about verses 8 and 9. 
the dash and the children against the rocks. So we should understand what was going on with the theology there. So here, look number one, the expression of divine blessing. Notice he says, uh, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Notice with this uh, expression of divine blessing, notice uh, Psalm 32 does not begin with direct praise to God like many thanksgiving psalms, but it begins with this expression <coughs> of divine blessing. And, and notice here, he says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. <coughs> Notice we've got three different words for sin. We've got sins, verse 1. Uh, verse 2, we have sin again. Uh, we have transgressions. Uh, in fact, I think the NIV had translated translates two different words as sin. You've got the one that means to miss the mark. The other one relates to crookedness. And uh, the other one re relates to uh, uh, violating a personal relationship. But notice there's an additional concept here in the last part of verse 2. <coughs> and in whose spirit is no deceit, so notice, he says, internally there's no deceit. So he piles up the terms for sin, but he also includes this thing about internally, I have no deceit. So these are very strong ways of the psalmist saying, I am fully a sinner. Uh, from the inside out, and he says, let me be clear, blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, that's a pretty full forgiveness, isn't it? I have had people ask me, how can an Old Testament saint make that statement? Uh, David was a saved man when this happened. This really looks back on Psalm 51. But yet, David has this idea in Psalm 51 and 32 that his sins are fully covered. Since Christ hasn't come, the argument often is that how could he legitimately pray that, say that? May I say, he did, because of who God was, he did believe that God would forgive sin. By the way, in the Old Testament, it does seem to me that there's three minimums that relates to God and people responding in faith. They had to see God as being holy and sovereign. They also had to see him as a just God because he's judging their sin. But yet, they also understood a concept that in God, there was some type of element for forgiveness of sin. So those three concepts seem to me to undergird all Old Testament theology. So God's holy. God is just. And God is a God who makes provision for sin. Now, by the way, notice the way I said that. I didn't say God is a God who just dismisses, dismisses sin. He's the God who makes provision for sin. Now, 
I don't know that all the Old Testament saints saw it clearly, but they did see in those sacrificial systems somehow that that pointed to God and his provision for sin. And I would understand because of the nature of God, they thought that this forgiveness of sin was pretty absolute. In fact, how absolute? Well, hold your finger here. Turn over to Psalm 103. Now, this, this is a powerful statement. <clears throat> powerful. <coughs> Look at verse 12. Well, in fact, go back to verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Well, that's pretty great love. But notice what this love relates to. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin or transgressions from us. That's a, as far as the east is from the west. You know, I can't figure that out, can you? That's, that's a great distance. So even prior to Christ, they had some type of understanding that in God, he makes provision for sin. And uh, they did see in some sense this is obviously eternal. Now, that's, as the writer of Hebrews says, that's not complete in the Old Testament. However, I would say that when God looked to forgive somebody's sin, even in the Old Testament... He had to view it through the death of Christ. There is no way they can have eternal forgiveness of sin if God did not look ahead to Christ and view their cry for mercy in light of the future atonement. Now, I don't understand what I saw clearly, but you see a progression if you start in the Pentateuch. It's not that clear. But as you, remove, as you move forward in history, especially with Isaiah, You've got the righteous king in chapters, I understand, 7 through 9. He will have a uh, elaborate, majestical kingdom that lasts forever. But the same terms that are used for that righteous king are also used in Isaiah 52 and 53, where he describes the suffering servant. So really, to me, in Isaiah, we see things starting to crystallize. Now, I don't know that every Old Testament saw that, but I think they had to believe both, both of those trajectories. I think they believed that God would have a great kingdom. Can I say, well, I don't like to use the term universal because people might think of a universalist. Can I say a worldwide kingdom? Uh, a global kingdom? So I've been trying to wash my mouth out with soap when I use the term universal. It's all accidental. So uh, it was would be a worldwide kingdom. I think when Isaiah came, they saw these trajectories pointing to what he says. They see that, and then they also see that the servant's going to die for sin. So to me, there's a crystallization in Isaiah of both those motifs. And I would understand that at that point, everybody had to have some type of basic concept about that. I think they see a crystallization. This righteous king will suffer and die for the sins of the remnant. So, but I understand that even prior to that, they had to have some type of concept that there was provision in God for eternal forgiveness. 
because I think that's what the psalm writer is saying in Psalm 103. So, you know, in the Old Testament, I think they understood a little bit more than what we realize. Um, you know, in fact, go figure. If they were totally depraved, total depravity, according to Romans 8, 7, includes total inability. It really sounds like I was unable to save myself. We were unable to please God. Uh, given that state, could I have conjured up any faith? Bad chance, friends. Bad chance. I, I didn't have it in me. That's why uh, theologically we would say that God had to impart some type of spiritual life. I'm probably a little, you know, I'm not a Reformed theologian. I'm a dispensationalist. However, there's a lot of things about Reformed theology I like. <laughs> and it does seem to me that I have to recognize God had to regenerate me. When he regenerated me, see, that explains why I can remember repenting and believing. God didn't do it for me. He changed my decision maker and I immediately repented and believed. So I don't take it that the gospel was presented and I get regenerated before that eons passed. I understand that the regenerating work of the Spirit goes when the gospel is presented. But may I say in the Old Testament, the total depravity was true then, and they were unable, as the Psalms reflect, didn't they also have to be regenerated? I mean, how else could they be saved? And I would understand that with that, you know, with regeneration, the Spirit uh, starts His saving work in them. So I understand that Old Testament saints were also in the wealth because how do you offset the effects of depravity? You've got to have some type of permanent work of God or your regeneration will be negated because we fall back into our sin. So that's why I can... Appreciate Psalm 32, Psalm 103. I think David really thought he had a full forgiveness. Now, as I said, I don't know that he would have all the revelation we have, but I think he had enough to understand that. So there was something in God that he saw where he made provision for sin. But he had to look for God for it, not in himself. So with that understanding... Get the impact of what David is saying here. How blessed, happy is the totally depraved sinner, that rotten scoundrel whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed, happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose Spirit, there is no deceit. That, that's a lofty expression of divine blessing. So, you know, we don't want to downplay it because it's in the Old Testament. I think we need to magnify it. Notice furthermore the description of his deliverance and distress, verses 3 to 10. Notice how he says here, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Notice how that's past tense. He's looking back to a time when he kept silent about his sin. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped 
as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, almost universally, may I say, oh, that reminds me, I'm supposed to be a community Baptist church man. <laughs> Went off a little bit late. <laughs> I said it wrong. <laughs> well, whatever. Maybe my wife would have come if I didn't. <laughs> well, uh, notice here, he's looking back. Most commentators, almost universally, in fact, should I say, this is the type of commentaries that have some footnotes in them. John R. Rice doesn't count. Oliver B. Green doesn't count although they may have had some lofty thoughts, but they weren't lofty enough because they didn't agree with me about regeneration or total depravity, including inability. What I mean by this is this. A good commentary is one that has some footnotes. It doesn't have to have a whole lot. But friends, if they don't want to cite the sources that influence them, who are they kidding? Did they think all these thoughts? Everybody uses commentaries. Some acknowledge it, some don't. I stay away from those who don't. Those commentators that are using footnotes, they agree Psalm 32 <coughs> looks back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 looks back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 when David sinned. David's forgiven his sin. He, after that, writes Psalm 51 then God really did forgive him. And his thanksgiving psalm is right here in Psalm 32. So, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Even somebody like David who was a murderer and an adulterer. And he's saying, God's forgiven my sins. He put that together with another psalm. Or he's just from the West. May I say, that's a pretty good forgiveness. So here, David's looking back, and he says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. But notice he draws a conclusion from this. He applies it. Verses 1 and 2, it's a general statement. Verses 3 through 5 are very personal. Then he wants to apply the truth. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach them. So he's appealing to other saints. If you're a saint, if you're part of the remnant, you pray to God. And in particular, while he may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. So notice how David moves back to the first person. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So he moves it back to himself. God's my hiding place. He protects me from trouble. He surrounds me with songs of deliverance. Though he wouldn't have been saying Jesus saves, but he'd be saying God saves. Uh, but he makes that appeal. I mean, isn't that typical for believers? They get converted or they repent because they've been wayward and 
They want to tell other people what God's done. They want to share it with believers. In fact, they want to share it with others. Well, that's the type of attitude we should have when we're thanking God for forgiving us. Uh, the part that's uh, very interesting to me is verses 8 to 10. I've got an NIV study Bible. I like the NIV. It's, it's my favorite translation. But notice here, if you've got the footnotes, <coughs> he says, it says, a priestly word of godly instruction, either to David or to those who have just been exhorted to trust in the Lord. Some believe that the psalmist himself here turns to others to warn them against the ways into which he had fallen. I agree with the last few. Now, let me explain why I take it. See, David is being used, I, me, and my, to refer to whom? Himself. So to just interject here, a priest, seems a little artificial to me. The uh, priest is exhorting him to do this. Now, I think a better explanation seems to be that David in thanksgiving now wants to instruct others. I'll teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. That just means he's personally involved. So I understand here that David is saying, I'm going to instruct those around me. I will counsel you and watch over you. I'll be personal. So rather than interjecting a priest speaking in verses 8 to 9, I don't know, maybe you all went to a Presbyterian or a liturgical church, and you have a lot of those pastoral sort of interjections. Well, I, I mean, I can remember some things where you get up and down, and you do these responsive readings, and you work in an I or my, but it's really not I or my. It's about the person who wrote it. Well, friends, that's what I'm saying here. David is saying, I want to tell others how God has delivered me. And I want to instruct them. And where I need to be, I will do it personally. So I understand here that David, he's kind of a sage here. He's a wise man saying, I've experienced God's saving grace. And let me tell you how you can experience it. In fact, I'm going to help you along in this. Uh, that sounds like a godly person. So then David strikes out in the second verse, in verse 9, into the second person. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Uh, don't be like those Democrats, <laughs> which have no understanding. <laughs> Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? I think we've got it here. <laughs> We've got the donkey and the mule. <laughs> uh, I'm glad there's no elephants here. <laughs> but don't be like the horses or the mule. They're not smart animals. They go by what they've been programmed to do. They have no understanding. They must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. So... Don't be stupid. That's what he's saying. Uh, show some wisdom. Notice verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked. You turn away from my counsel, you'll have many woes. 
But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. I like the contrast there. Many are the woes of the wicked. But, capital B-U-T, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. That's very positive. God's sovereign grace, His sovereign love, surrounds the one who trusts in Him. So that's verses uh, 3 through 10. I think we can see David's flow of thought here. To me, it seems pretty clear. In fact, I've got a message on this psalm. It's a 30-minute message. To trace the flow of thought here is not that complex. But I like verse 11. That's what I like to park a little bit. Notice the concluding appeal to join in worship. He says here, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. You know, I've been asking a number of questions. When I look at the descriptions of believers in the Old Testament, they're righteous, they're upright, they're perfect. I can never identify with that. Well, this is the passage I love to take them to. Because the first part of the psalm defines who the righteous are. May I say, we're talking about forgiven sinners. So they're ones growing in righteousness, growing in uprightness. So in Old Testament theology, these are terms you use for a saint growing in grace. Those are the ones who rejoice. Sing all you who are upright in heart. So I get the idea that with the rejoicing, I'm not, you know, I'm not Pentecostal. Definitely not. I'm, I'm surprisingly reserved. So I'm not. I mean, I don't lift my hands. I think we got somebody sits in the balcony and is sitting and lifts his hands. Uh, I don't. I've never. But in my heart, I am. So I don't feel I have to show it like other people. But friends, notice, if it's in our heart, there's still got to be this sense of rejoicing. Um, I've got an analogy that I've used from time to time that I think gets closer to what I sense by rejoicing. When when I was a kid, my dad was a lifeguard. And... uh, you know, I don't remember when we started to swim. We were just pretty young. I just remember swimming, and the next thing I knew, I was on a swimming team. And, uh, you know, my dad and a couple other friends, would, they would have a few beers, and we'd always ski on Sunday. Uh, and so we were around water. Uh, I'm surprised, surprised I lived because of the Ohio River, which was really dirty. <laughs> Fortunately, my dad became a Christian, and he wouldn't ski on Sunday anymore. We thought it wasn't toxic. <laughs> but, you know, that's just, my sister's the same way. Um, you know, uh, my dad remarried after my mother died. Interestingly, our pastor died two weeks before my mother, or maybe my mother was two weeks before him. So my dad and our pastor's wife married. He inherited four children. He thought at 46 he couldn't have any more children, but lo and behold, then there was 
Esther Joy, my uh, half-sister. And uh, she is a, a joy. I mean, she's just an upbeat person. She reminds me of uh, Sandra Bullock as she's portrayed in some of these movies, just kind of an upbeat, bubbly person. Well, that was, uh, I mean, Esther, my dad did the same thing with her and with Joanna. They just started swimming early. So I think Joanna's a lifeguard, uh, or she was a lifeguard. So I had to become a lifeguard. My dad was a lifeguard, and I became a lifeguard. But my dad, I think ultimately he was a better swimmer than me, and I know that for sure. When I took my lifeguard test the first time, I flunked it. There was a good reason why I flunked it. This uh, football player, college football player, I think he was a guard on the football team, but he was at a major university. He greased himself down. I was 125 pounds when I was wet. So I go out there, this guy's kind of, you know, flailing away and, you know, splashing all this water, and I get him in a cross-chest carrier. Well, he's supposed to resist me, and he's all greased down in it. I mean, he really resisted me well. I'd never experienced the sensation that I might drown, but he got over me and I took water in. Well, I got back up and uh, I went after him again. I was, you know, when I was 16, I was crazy enough to think I could bring him in. So I go after him again. I get him in the cross-chest care. <laughs> and he just slipped out of it again. So this time he got on top of me and, you know, I really thought I would not get up. For the first time in my life, I thought I was going to drown. I mean, I swam all my life. I'm taking a lifeguard test. How can you think you're going to drown? Well, I was there. So he was quite a bit bigger. I mean, he had to be by at least 100 pounds. So I'm down there and I'm thinking I'm going to perish. And what do you do at that time? Well, you look for somewhere where he's vulnerable, and then you just go for the juggler. I did. <laughs> and he rolled over and faint. I pulled him in, but I got flunked on the exam because I turned my back on him the first two times. So I had to go back out there and face that guy again. However, he didn't seem to resist me as much. <laughs> well, my dad passed his lifeguard test the first time around. But can I say, friends, breathing was kind of a natural thing to me. But I'll never forget when I got him off me so I could get above the water. You know, those breaths were breaths of joy. I mean, can I say I was rejoicing? You know, I think that's the analogy of the way we ought to view ourselves. Friends, I mean, we were truly helpless. I had some hope, but we were truly helpless. We were worse than I was. And yet, in the midst of our lives, God in His infinite, sovereign grace and mercy reached down and saved the hell-deserving sinner. And it does seem to me the joy I experienced when I first became a Christian was great. I always ask myself, why don't we rejoice over salvation like we did when we first became a Christian? Doesn't it show that uh, maybe we ought to repent because 
we don't have that same joy. So I would say that uh, when we think about our condition, that when I preach this song, I always use that analogy because it's, it's a good comparison. But uh, I am trying to get people to rejoice because our sins are forgiven. We do rejoice in the grace of God. And so we can identify with the righteous here, the upright. When they're described as being perfect, I can identify with those people because we're growing in perfection. We're not perfect, but yet uh, when we look back, thank God we were are not what we were before we were saved. And so I think we can rejoice. So David's exhortation here, this appeal to join him in praise, is to say all those who are truly righteous, all those who uh, God surrounds with unfailing love, rejoice in the mercy he showed towards us. So whether we do that very visibly or we're typical Midwestern people, you know, we do it internally, we ought to to have that type of joy. So uh, that's Psalm 32. I think it's a great psalm. It is a Thanksgiving psalm, and we ought to rejoice because God has saved us. Well, I have more to say, but uh, I think that verse 11 is pretty climactic. (laughs) So uh, let me just stress a few other things here. Notice I lay out other individual Thanksgiving psalms. I, I also summarized the message here. Our merciful God's deliverance of His dependent people produces thankful worship in them. <coughs> so the God of mercy delivers His people, not only when they were saved, but whenever. And we rejoice and thank and offer thankful worship to Him. So that's the basic message. If you get that, you have the main point. Now, I do have an outline here that you can use if you ever give a devotional or uh, would be called on to preach. Uh, You just never know. Uh, You may be somewhere and people just are spineless and don't want to get up and let it rip. But you can stand up. (laughs) You know, I remember one... Well, you all know Gary Brown, don't you? Gary had been on vacation and he came back. He's the teacher of the Heritage class. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, Gary, uh, I appreciate very greatly ever since that summer three, five years ago when he laid out the five points of Calvinism and I realized he really was the real thing. <laughs> I was trying to calm him down so I didn't get carried away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, so I appreciate Gary, but apparently he can be a little absent-minded. So he comes back from vacation, and I've been teaching the class, and I thought he was back on the docket. And I show up to Sunday school, and I don't have any notes. Uh, you know, I got some notes in my Bible, and Gary, uh, Gary says, "Well, I'm glad you're teaching today." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, yes." <laughs> well. You know, I've got some psalms that I have pretty much in memory how the flow of thought is. Psalm 23 is like that, Psalm 32. So I just went ahead and gave it 
And uh, I'm usually driven by my notes because I'm very insecure when I'm in front of people. So I like to have that before me. So what I did while they were praying is I jotted down a few key ideas and you know, I got up there and uh, let it rip for 25 minutes and my wife says, that's one of the best messages you ever gave. <laughs> well, I felt bad about that because I, that was half an effort. <laughs> well, it's a good idea to put some things down so you would be in a position where you can step up. and you know, There's no greater thing than helping people to understand the Word of God. Um, you know, I continually thank God. I don't see why He saw fit to take me, save me, and then in His providence place place me in ministry. But well, by the way, notice I said in His providence. I was never looking for a uh, direct call from God. I've had we've rejected some people who applied to seminary who did have a direct call, and I remember I had to deal with it. And, this individual said, well, you say, describe your call. And I said, we're trying to find out what you think about the call. And, uh, you know, I hate to see a grown man call me, cry because he really did have a call. God did directly speak to him. That's what he claimed. And it sounded like Paul when he's caught up into the third heaven. I mean, I know the passage very well. That's what he described. And so when we saw that in his biographical sketch, I had the lower tone, we don't see that, and we don't accept anybody who takes that. And, you know, he called me, and he started crying, and I said, you know, we don't want to make you feel comfortable. We're not trying to be mean with you, but with your Pentecostal leanings here, you will not like our seminary. So he hung up on me, and he called me back, and he says, you're right, you are a bunch of phony baloney. I'm the one with the call. <laughs> well, I describe, we use that term very loosely. We're just trying to say that somebody feel they belong in the ministry. So I don't have that type of Macedonian call. And further, if I did, I'd probably lose my job. <laughs> so as, as registrar, I've had some very interesting experiences. And that was one of the most interesting ones, especially when he said we were a bunch of phonies. Well, go figure. He didn't show up, though. And that's what counted. <laughs> well, so it would be good to uh, take... A, you know, I like to use the songs because they're short. You can cover those in a reasonable amount of time. When you get into historical books, so often you got to put it in the context. And it's uh, Now, I can take, you know, a passage from the historical books. I can preach four chapters in 30 minutes. You got to know what you're going to stress, but that's harder than the Psalms. The Psalms are pretty easy because when you look at the first two verses, maybe first three verses, it tells you what the subject is. The rest of the Psalm tells you what it says about the subject. So if I can do that, anybody can do it. So to me, you can be able to win it. Uh, Kim, you can. Gene, you can take the men on. <laughs> Ron. You, you used to teach that big Sunday school class. Then, and then they kind of break up into smaller groups. Yeah, it's a very good group of people. By the way, those are those are the people who really give the inner city. Now, Pastor Dorn doesn't preach tithing. Now, we still have some big givers. But 
You know, without those older people, I really wonder where the city would be. So, I mean, I agree, and I don't think we should. I mean, I have no problem with somebody saying we need 10% or making it part of your church covenant because you do need a certain amount of money for an ongoing ministry. But to put people under bondage who don't have it, that's what distresses me a little bit. We should believe in grace giving, but we're giving more than 10%. I mean, if we're in a position to do that. Not everybody's in a position to do that. But I know Dr. Rice and Dr. Towns, it was the one-two punch. Every year at the same time. Towns would preach kind of a legalistic message on tithing. Then Dr. Rice would get grace worked into it. <laughs> but I think Towns was meant to be the fall guy myself. <laughs> But I remember one time he came over and preached that at the seminary. And uh, one of our profs questioned them on. Now it wasn't me. But uh, I remember we had a faculty meeting afterwards and we agreed that we wouldn't raise questions like that. We have our seniors graduate every spring. So the code expression for me is if I go up to somebody and I say, thank you for preaching, tell me, what sources did you use for your message? <laughs> what I mean is... is I'm trying to figure out how in the world you ever came up with that. <laughs> so my son Bob, when he graduated, he said, uh, you all know what my dad says. I'm just praying he doesn't come up and ask me what sources did you use. <laughs> so I went up and hugged him afterwards because <laughs> I knew he did his homework. So that's our buzz expression. But notice the way the Psalm 32 with the outline, how breaks down. Verses 1 to 5 are very specific. Verses 6 to 7 move to a general. Our merciful God delivers his dependent people from distress. So it's more things than sin. In verses 6 to 7, it's from all types of distress. Notice verse 3. God's people proclaim his merciful deliverance of them from their distress. So he's dealing with trouble. Uh, verse or number four, God's people rejoice in His merciful deliverance of them from distress. Notice the third one's proclaim, you declare it. Verse 11 is they rejoice in it. And that's where, uh, what we emphasize. Okay, any questions on that? Very important song. Bob? Oh, okay. Well, I would suspect that happens when you have kids. Um, yeah, we we had. I mean, many times my wife called me from seminary because one of my sons was slamming the other. So, but I did put a stop to it. I was at the seminary one time, and they were 17 and 19. So my wife said they're, they're stressed. So I called the police. It never happened again. But I wanted to communicate a point. I'm not going to put up with that type of garbage. So it did. No, I mean I. I think if you, if you have boys, if you know boys, they're different than girls. They fight and, uh, you know, they were just bigger than my wife and I felt like, well, they don't need to get away with that, so they never did it again. Now, by the way, I did get home. I knew the police officer and I said, I am trying to put the fear of God in them because they've lost it and, you know, Josh was 17 and he was at the height of his rebellion. And Bob 
had already won a karate tournament and uh, maybe two at that point. I knew he could beat me up. Now, Bob would never do that. And I know Joshua would. However, I could see it in his eyes sometimes. I don't want to push the kid too far. <laughs> so I figured at this point it's just good to let him know the police will be involved. And I told both of them, you do that again, we'll change the locks on the door when you go out. So it worked pretty well. They were pretty good after that. <laughs> well, anyway, well, this is a good place to stop. Next week we'll pick up with this National Thanksgiving Psalm. Um, this is good for Thanksgiving. I've used Psalm 124 at, for various Thanksgiving uh, Sundays and you know the Sunday before or after I've used this and people love it because I get done in 20 minutes. Okay, well we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>